sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Welcome, amigos y amigas, to episode double five of You Don't Have to Yell. It's the bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, trying to bring some Dr. Pepper to a Coke and Pepsi political world. Now, back in 1992, a new party created under Texas billionaire Ross Perot entered the presidential race and proved to have a platform many Americans really liked. The Reform Party ran on a platform that embraced the fiscal conservatism of the Republican Party, low taxes and a balanced budget, while avoiding some of the social issues that alienated many voters. And they managed to get close to 20% of the popular vote in 92. Now, the party also put on an okay showing in the 96 presidential election and got a governor in office in Minnesota before kind of disappearing from the scene. The party's still around and staging a comeback on a platform that very much resembles the old one. And today, I talk with Chairman-elect Nick Hensley about where the party is right now, where it wants to be, and why lobbyists had to make special spoons to get around campaign finance laws. I'm not kidding, I wish I were. Per usual, all will be revealed in this episode, and also per usual, I'll be back at the end with some final thoughts. First off, could you tell the listeners who you are and what you what you do? My name is Nicholas Hensley. I am the secretary of the Reform Party National Committee and the chairman-elect who takes office next year. Congratulations on the election, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. So, And now, where are you located? I am out of Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh. All right. Our producer, the big Gino himself, lives in, uh, lives in Raleigh. It's a great city, uh, growing very quickly. Yeah, he likes it. Gino and I both grew up in just outside of Boston, and he moved down to Raleigh, I don't know how many years ago, probably like, I want to say maybe 10-ish or so. You know, he was living in Raleigh for a while and then decided, oh, I want to move back up to Boston. I don't know if you heard about it on the news, but there was a year where we quite literally had two feet of snow dumped on us every week in the month of February. So we had six feet of snow. I mean, it was to the point where like, snow plows were like clipping fire hydrants off the sidewalk because they just couldn't see them in all the snow. I mean, it was it was like a disaster. That was the year he decided to move up here. So he got here in the fall and he put his house in the market in March. And I don't think he's ever coming back now. He's just been traumatized by that. Are you originally a resident of Raleigh or? I was born in Seattle, Washington. My father worked for Microsoft back in the late 80s and early 90s. He was a development lead on MS-DOS and Windows 95. He was working from 8 a.m. in the morning to 8 p.m. at night, Monday through Friday, a half-day Saturday, and uh, quote-unquote on-call one Sunday a month for uh, (laughs) if the compiler broke or anything like that, which means he had to work. And after about five to six years of that, he decided to uh, pack up and move back to uh, to the south. Sounds like just like the tech industry just followed your dad there pretty much, huh? Yes. And then I grew up here in the Raleigh suburbs. I went to college for a little bit, but it really wasn't for me. Uh, I'm, I'm on the ADD autism spectrum. I'm not really good at interacting in the way that the system says that I should interact with things. I do very, very well in a fast place 
a fast paced environment where there's a lot of things going on and a lot of things to bring my attention to focus. Yeah. All right. And so now you're focused on the Reform Party, huh? Yes. I've been with the Reform Party for about since I was 19 and I'm 31 now. Got it. And so what, what attracted you to the Reform Party? I started off in the Democratic Party. I was never registered a Democrat, but like most independents, that's the way that I leaned. Um, most independents will lean one way or the other. And being one of those guys that doesn't like being told what to do, and I could not follow a party line because I could look at something and say, well, that's not actually true, or see details and learn what I wasn't supposed to actually know. Most of these large parties, they like followers, people who just, they have an opinion. They like to listen to things that reinforce that opinion and use that to control those people, that group of people. I don't follow that mold. I don't get morally, uh, what's it called? Morally outraged by things that I see on TV. I look at the issue. I then want to learn about that issue, find all of the details and understand why this situation happened, what were the underlying factors and work on those to solve the situation rather than just be angry. Yeah. So you've got like more of an engineering mindset than a, I don't know what the artist mindset, an emotional mindset. Is that fair to say? That is very fair to say. It is very hard to get me worked up over a political issue. So it sounds like the Democratic Party was really way too constrictive for you. How how is the Reform Party different? The Reform Party likes and encourages independent thinking. Mm -hmm. A Reform Party meeting is a very interesting place because most of the people have their own opinions that might not completely line up with the party and that's okay no one's going to shout at them or yell at them or tell them that they're stupid because they think a little bit differently than the party does Mm -hmm. and in fact those conversations and those discussions have been very important towards building the party and having the party grow Mm -hmm. the times when the party did very poorly and it shrank were times when someone tried to force their viewpoint especially in leadership which would cause people to leave And when we have an organically growing conversation and an organically growing party because it's being uh, nurtured very well with uh, independent thinking, the party does very, very well. That's what happened in the 90s. I think most of us, or at least myself and most people my age, remember Ross Perot's Reform Party, um, which – to, and again, to the best of my recollection, was skeptical of – uh, globalization for the impact it was having on American workers. Uh, it was fiscally conservative, but it also was fairly dispassionate about a lot of the social issues that were uh, really the hallmarks of republicanism. And and correct me if I'm wrong there on the 90s, but that was my understanding. That is very true of the 90s, and it's very true of it now to a certain extent. So what happened then, I guess, between that – because I remember Ross Perot, he did the first run. Uh, Then, of course, he ran a second time, was shut out of the debates. Um, And then the next was uh, Jesse Ventura getting elected to governor of Minnesota. And then a lot of people don't remember that that was actually Donald Trump's first presidential run. Or at least that was his first foray into presidential politics, right? It was. The 2000 election for the Reform Party is sort of an 
oddball kind of thing. Yeah. When the Reform Party was was only formed about four years earlier, mm-hmm. and a lot of these people were very new to politics. They didn't have a lot of experience. They really didn't understand how to build an organization and maintain it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, if you actually watch early Reform Party meetings, they're, they're disasters. There's a lot of debate over what actual procedure is. There's a lot of debate over operational plans and, and, and effective operational plans uh, that were uh, basically done by people who weren't in the professions. Coming into 2000, I want to say it was Pat Shotate. This is well before I was in the Reform Party, and I could be wrong on a few of the smaller points. Sure. But I can give you the general overview of what happened. Yeah. In 2000, Pat Shotate, who was uh, the chairman at the time and Ross Perot's running mate in 96, invited Pat Buchanan to join the Reform Party uh, primary. Pat Buchanan agrees initially to not run on his social platform. But he had run twice before for president, and his campaign committee was uh, buried in debt. Pat Buchanan then used sometimes illegal and dubious means to get the Reform Party nomination. He would get hundreds of of his followers to register as the Reform Party, literally bust them over to meetings, county-level meetings, have them vote for whoever they wanted as far as their chairs and and their issues, whatever, push out the Reform Party people. And then when he got the nomination, he used the Reform Party's matching funds to repay his debts from the previous two campaigns. So he effectively used the Reform Party as a way to bail himself out of two failed presidential bids, huh? Yes. All right. Because there was not a lot of money going to advertising or campaigning, he did Mm -hmm. very, very poorly. And a lot of the people who were influential in founding the party left. Hundreds of very good people left the Reform Party because of they were bullied. There was death threats involved. There was a lot of just illegal shenanigans. And mm. what happened was a collapse. Not to mention, Pat Buchanan in and of himself is a fairly divisive figure. Um, I, 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 you know, my recollection of the reform party brand back in the 90s was a let's call it a less divisive version of republicanism especially for people up in the northeast like myself who weren't necessarily as hardcore about the social issues it was very attractive and i think pat buchanan you you can't you might switch parties but you're not going to walk away from that history Yes, Pat Buchanan brought the worst of republicanism, the fringe republicanism, into the Reform Party, and yeah. it kind of blew up. Yeah. Do you think there were some of the efforts made by the, especially the the, the Republican Party, to shut the Reform Party out of the debates in the 96 election, uh, do you think that played a role in the decline or do you feel like it was really more a suicide rather than a murder? I wasn't there, but from what I understand and what has been told to me by different sources is it may have also been a an organized effort to get the Reform Party off of the ballot and mm. out of politics. Mm. So basically insert Pat Buchanan there as kind of a time bomb. Yes. And, and then, uh, yeah. And uh, it worked very, very well. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. So now kind of getting back to the, to the Ross Perot era and, and the platform then is the interesting thing is as I was preparing for this episode and as I was thinking about it again, I realized that Perot's platform was almost proto-Trumpian in a way in the sense that international agreements were a big focus of his. And, you know, one of the things I've said on this podcast before is that the seeds of Hillary Clinton's defeat were really planted by her husband because Bill Clinton, despite getting a lot of support from the union base, from the, the working class, uh, also favored this rapid acceleration into globalization without taking any measures to make sure those people were taken care of. And if you look at the results of that, the result of that was the upper Midwest, the area that was responsible for Trump's uh, 2016 win, weren't, they weren't as attached. And they weren't as attached to the Democratic Party anymore because they hadn't been taken care of for two to three decades. And, and Perot saw that very early on. Um, and now dovetailing to today, you know, I, I read the, I read over the platform and it does seem kind of Trumpian. So, you know, there's a focus on illegal immigration and, and trade. And of course the trade policies, am, am I wrong there or, or no? To an extent, yes. To an extent, no. Okay. For a very long time, the dominant forces in the Reform Party were out of the Southwest. Mm-hmm. So what happened with the platform during that period of about 2005 to about 2009 is it took on some Texas and Arizona social issues, with mm-hmm. especially with illegal immigration. Personally, I want to see a path to citizenship. I'm all for dreamers. I'm, mm-hmm. I am known as the nominal leader of the liberals within the Reform Party. Our convention right now is still in session, mm-hmm. and we are actively working on renovating our platform for a basically the 2020s. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, again, kind of getting back to this idea that people in the Reform Party can disagree, it sounds like that focus on immigration is part of the platform, but there's still some parts of the party that aren't entirely on board with that. Is that fair to say, or am I, am I off base? Okay. Uh, we've had some organizational issues within the last uh, few years. Um, mm-hmm. w- one of those organizational issues was taken out during the election when the new slate of officers, myself, Lee Paulette, Mike Hackmer, and David Carlson mm-hmm. won with a three to one voting uh, ratio. Mm-hmm. against a group that uh, against the former slate of officers that haven't held a meeting in two years. Mm. So we had a lot of things where things had fallen off because uh, we haven't, no one called the meetings to fix them or that they weren't showing up to the meetings to get quorum, but we've replaced more than half of the executive board. And these are issues that we are actively working on now. Okay. Okay. So that's all being tooled. Yes. Um, and uh, there was another thing that popped up, and this might f- fall into that category as well, which is the focus on voter ID. Is that one of the things that's in debate, or is that something that most folks are, are in agreement on? That has been a subject of debate for some time. You have some people within the party that believes that uh, we're the only country in the world that does not have where people don't show an ID when they go to vote. Mm-hmm. 
then you have people like me who think that that's unnecessary and that it's a poll tax. If you actually look at electoral fraud, it's a very, very small marginal uh, sample. It does not actually affect the end outcome of an election. Mm-hmm. And it's if there was a problem with voter fraud, I would see voter ID as necessary, but there isn't. And why create a problem when there isn't a problem? Yeah, I'm I'm definitely with you there. And in a lot of ways, too, whether you're for or against the Electoral College, the Electoral College kind of safeguards against that as well, because it's very unlikely you are going to be able to tar- turn a deep red state blue without making it without some huge party apparatus uh, doing it. And it's just it's it's uh, from uh, it's structurally impossible from from my point of view. Maybe moving a little off topic here, I definitely have my opinions on the the immigration issue and and on the uh, trade issue, and I feel the two can kind of work together. And one of the things that I think is you you cannot have some of the poorest nations in the Western Hemisphere living within proximity to one of the wealthiest nations on earth and not expect some migration and cannot expect some illegal immigration over the southern border. Uh, And at the same time, we have trade agreements that would actually or could structure trade agreements in a way that actually build the economies of these southern of these regions or could actually be structured in a way that would help remove that uh, desperation. That that is is very true, especially when we look at NAFTA and its effects on Mexico. Mm -hmm. Now, people talk about jobs shifting down south to Mexico. That is true to an extent and untrue to an extent. Before NAFTA, Mexico actually uh, grew most of its own crops. And it had a very vibrant agricultural uh, industry. What we see because of NAFTA is that America has been able to dump cheap agricultural goods into Mexico. And a lot of these small farmers and a lot of these Mexican farms have actually dried up. The Mexico now imports a vast amount of what it consumes. Hmm. And what's the impact been on the Mexican economy? What we have seen is a lot of the rural areas of Mexico have gotten poorer. While, yes, they have got manufacturing jobs in the urban areas, a lot of that's shifted uh, away from smaller rural communities, much like you've seen in the United States where we had mill towns, where those mills have now been shipped down there. So we killed the U.S. mill towns and killed the Mexican farming towns, effectively, is what you're saying? Yes. How would the Reform Party restructure NAFTA to make it? more equitable. Well, you have to understand a trade agreement has to be mutually beneficial to both parties involved. The problem with free trade is it tries to create a uniform agreement across all of these different nations without taking into account the, uh, their government, their regulations, uh, how they mm-hmm. treat their workers and all of all of this underlying stuff. So what happens is you get trade agreements that have the opposite effect. We want to create a trade agreement that's mutually beneficial for both countries involved, but it really takes away from one country and gives to the other. Yeah. Well, and here's the other thing, too, is that number one, 
what I've seen with most U.S. trade agreements is they've simply allowed us to export jobs as a way to get around the environmental and labor regulations of the United States. Yes. And, and, and I, I, I will say this to all Americans, slavery is alive and well in the world, and it is alive and well in the U.S. economy. It is present in the products we buy. Uh, the reality is, is that, that <laughs> I mean, let's be real here. The laptop I'm recording this on, the phone I text my family and friends on, uh, the clothes I wear are all manufactured and uh, under conditions that we would never accept for American workers. And so in my mind, if we want a trade agreement that's just and a trade agreement that truly puts American workers on a level playing field, with those in other countries, let's make sure that the regulations are the same. Yes. Does that align with the Reform Party view or am I? That would, re- that would align with the Reform Party view. Got it. Now, number two, and, and second thing, and sorry for pontificating here, but you just, you've really got me thinking. Number two, the interesting thing that I find about this issue with the, the farm towns in Mexico is the fact that it might be more expensive to grow crops in the United States, but our farming, our agricultural industry is so heavily subsidized that there's zero way anyone could compete. That is very true. We subsidize our agricultural goods very, very highly, um, especially the corn industry. And because of that, we can just dump agricultural products and to other countries on the taxpayer dime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. basically pay to to damage the Mexico agricultural economy and a lot of South America. Yeah. Every time I hear somebody from the farm belt railing against socialism, I want to puke. Because it's like, talk to your neighbor, dude. You know? Well, if we actually look at those corn subsidies, they play yeah. a big role in the primaries, especially with uh, the mid Iowa going up first in the primary elections. Mm-hmm. If we were, if any, if any candidate was to say, "I'm not for corn subsidies at all," and went into those Iowa primaries, they would have a very poor showing, and it would hinder their ability through the rest of the primary. Yeah, well, in little history fact too, I think it was the Nixon administration that introduced the corn subsidies, I want to say. Uh, And look at the obesity epidemic. You know, tell me when that started. The thing I want to highlight here for folks is that you may think you're against socialism and you may think you're voting against it. Uh, But when our food supply is influenced by government subsidies, that is a form of socialism, number one. Number two... When our food supply makes people sick as a result of those subsidies and you pay more on health care as a result of a sicker population, that is in a way a tax. That is in a way removing money from the economy that could be spent in other ways. Not related directly to the Reform Party, but we have people of multiple different philosophies who listen. And I want to make sure that that is, is very clear to these folks. Actually, we can actually broaden this subject into special interest spending. 
and how special interest spending on a whole is socialism because we're taking from one group to give tax breaks and subsidies to another. We're taking from the American middle class and giving it to these corporations under the uh, guise of prosperity. And that is a form of socialism. Yeah. And now that's another big part of the Reform Party's platform, which is uh, really eliminating special interests. So what what are some of the bigger things that the Reform Party would do to to curb the influence of special interests in government? Well, we would get rid of the, the political action committee. The political action committee, specifically the super PAC, has mm-hmm. the ability to raise an unlimited amount of money from a special interest group, uh, insurance, agriculture, manufacturing, and dump it into the p- political discussion to help a candidate. And it basically takes away from all of the laws that we have for candidates' uh, spending habits and limits. It basically nullifies anything that we have on the books. And it runs against the spirit of these campaign finance laws. Yeah. And for those listening who don't know, this podcast originally started out of my interest to reform campaign finance. And the one thing I found, Nick, and I'll be interested in your take on this, is that every campaign finance law that's ever been enacted has always been gutted in the courts. And the reason the U.S. specifically has such a difficult time writing effective campaign finance legislation as opposed to other countries is that in other countries, it is a lot easier for them to define what is political speech and what isn't. Whereas in this country, we just start to run up right against the constitutional right to free speech. So is there a bulletproof way or is there a way to do effective campaign finance without constantly running into that argument? Because that's what I always see. I'm unsure of that answer. I'm not a constitutional scholar. I've never been into law school. Yeah. But it's a very interesting concept and a very interesting uh, problem to look at. Yeah. I'll give you an answer from your platform, actually, because there was, there was a policy that's, that really interested me, which was prohibiting people from fundraising while in office. Could you tell me about that? Like, what impact would that have? And tell me how that would work. Okay. So... Once someone is elected to an office, they spend about 75 to 80% of their time when they're not in chamber fundraising, making calls, talking to people to get money for their campaign. Mm -hmm. As soon as you win a campaign, basically an office holder starts raising money for his next election. Mm -hmm. And this conversation and this dialogue that they need to have with special interests and donors to raise this money completely affects what decisions they make in the chambers of Congress. Mm-hmm. Your fundraising completely then relies on the votes that you make as the congressional representative. So the money that, that you're getting is dictating your path and who is paying you money is dictating your path. And you said 80% of their time is spent fundraising somewhere around there, somewhere between I've heard it from 75 to 90%. Okay. So to, to frame that for, folks listening, 
75 to 90 percent of time is spent speaking with donors. Yes. Going to fundraisers, so, uh, going to events. Certain percentage is spent legislating and mm-hmm. doing what you do on Capitol Hill. I can't say I, I know. And so at absolute most, there is 25 percent spent speaking with voters if they don't do anything else. Yes. In fact, a, an incoming congressman is instructed usually to spend at least four hours a day on average fundraising. And that's something that I think a lot of Americans could really buy into is the idea that maybe people in office should spend more time doing their job than they should raising funds. And I guess maybe to take that a step further, that would still, of course, allow them to have some sort of other fundraiser or bundler doing that work for them, correct? That would, to an extent. Another platform plank of the Reform Party is limiting the ability of lobbyists within the chamber. Uh, We want to eliminate the lobbyists out of Washington by uh, restricting the gifts that lobbyists can give to lawmakers. Um, one, uh, one of the things that, uh, was restricted was meals very recently within the last five years. Lobbyists used to actually buy meals for congressmen and hold these events where they would feed the congressmen and then talk to them about whatever issue that was curtailed in previous legislation where they, the law was that the, the lobbyists could not give congressmen plates that could be eaten with a fork and knife. So okay. what they did was they invented a spoon and they put the food on the spoon and the congressman can eat using this spoon with full of food. Are you serious? Yes. So just to make sure I understand, if I'm going to some lobbyist junket and the meal is, I don't know, like steak, you know, steak and potatoes, I'm going to see a bunch of lo- a bunch of lawmakers eating that with a spoon Basically, yes. That is bananas. That is bananas. Do you know what? I'm going to put out a call. I typically don't do this. I'm going to put out a call for guests. Find me the people who have to cut up the food of the congressmen and congresswomen who attend those junkets. That's what I would love to see. It's like eating with my kids. Have you ever been to like an Asian restaurant and they have that spoon? It's not really a spoon, but it's... uh, Yeah. Uh, it's kind of it's like a ladle, like a little ladle. Yeah. Yes. That's about what it looks like. Yeah. So they have like special lobbyist spoons. Yes. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard. I that was is, watching, I was watching that on the news and just shaking my head. If it weren't 2020, if it weren't 2020, that would be front page right there. Special interest spoons. Let me just ask, just to make sure, is there anything dumber than that in, in, the, in our special interest laws? Or is that like the trophy right there? The, that the, is the one sp- of the trophies. I'm not a complete expert on this. I'm more of an operations guy. But I'm yeah. pretty sure there's probably something that trumps that. Yeah. Well, we'll consider that the reigning champion right now. And I, I so hope, I so hope that gets knocked down. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with more Nick Hensley on this episode of You Don't Have to Yell. I hope you're enjoying this episode, and I need you to help me by doing a very simple teensy-weensy little favor. 
Regardless of your opinion of our current president, his election was due largely to the distrust and disenchantment that came from many Americans feeling ignored by the establishment of our two major parties. And they're not entirely wrong. While both major parties like to get us fighting over wedge issues, their record on managing the issues that matter to us most, such as containing drug costs, helping more Americans benefit from the fantastic wealth generated over the last 20 years is pretty much the same. And our system, once again, has delivered two candidates people aren't all that happy with. And we can't expect any different unless we create a system of elections that makes them earn our vote. And electoral reform is the way we're going to get it done. Now, to do that, we need the people who benefit most from the rules to change them. And to do that, it's going to take a lot of Americans to make themselves heard. So let's get more folks to join the movement right now. You can help by sharing YDHTY. All you need to do is click the share button on whatever kooky device you're listening to this on. Now, you can also help by leaving a review and letting other people know what we're about. So that is technically two teensy-weensy things, but hopefully not too hard. And now, back to the show. Just to recap for everyone, so far, the, the things I'm taking away about the Reform Party is uh, at this point in time, it is a party that allows for dissenting opinion. Unlike, well, right now the Republicans are a fairly unified party. I think the Democrats probably are a little more uh, varied in terms of their their overall opinions. Um, big focus on trade. Uh, big focus on uh, eliminating special interests. Uh, and that when politicians go to a meal provided by a lobbyist, they need someone to cut up their food and then they have to eat it with a spoon. What are the other things that the reform party is uniformly for or against right now? Okay. Since we've just talked about lobbyists, I'm going to mention this fact. Mm -hmm. A lot of the bills that we see in Congress are actually written by lobbyists and the special interests and then handed to a congressman. Mm -hmm. And this is a very important thing to stop the staff a congressman or his staff needs to be the person writing these bills because that's what we've elected them to do yeah they should not be having special interests give them the laws that they want passed mm -hmm. they should not be an open door well they should be an open door they should not be a revolving door for the special interests and i'd add if the members of congress didn't have to spend 75 to 90 percent of their time fundraising they'd actually have time to write the laws themselves Pretty much. Yeah. We want to balance the federal budget. The federal budget has only been balanced once in my lifetime. Yeah. So the the last time the government wasn't running a deficit was in uh, late 90s. It was Clinton and Gingrich. Yes. Uh, they had officially eliminated the deficit. And the interesting thing is right after that, and uh, I am – probably one of the few geeks who's going to remember this, but Bush went and cut taxes and just blew that all up. So he, he cut taxes, uh, engaged in deficit spending, then started the war in Iraq. Uh, and that created uh, our, that effectively uh, caused our deficit to, or caused the, 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 the debt to explode. 
And I guess one question I have for you on that front is I've done a lot of work or done a lot of research on the national debt in past episodes of this podcast. And I think it's January. uh, We did an entire series on the national debt. And one of the interesting things that economists brought up is that the, the debt per se isn't as important as the deficit. Getting that deficit under control uh, is far more important because in an ideal scenario, the economy by nature, unlike households, the economy's income grows in perpetuity if you're doing the right things and enacting the right policies. And so we can effectively maybe inflate our way out of debt, as weird as that sounds. Um, Now, the second part of that conversation was we are not going to be able to do that without either drastically cutting spending to a degree that's probably unacceptable to voters or raising taxes. Taxes is about the dirtiest word in politics. How does the reform party feel about taxes? Well, we understand that too. In the deficit, we're going to have to basically balance cutting the budget and raising taxes. Mm -hmm. And that is a dirty word. And some people don't like it when we say that. But when you look at the numbers, you're going to have to raise taxes even just a little bit to get the, uh, to end the deficit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for anyone who's kind of like looking askew at this or or a little, uh, you know, a little upset at the fact that somebody's talking about raising taxes, let's keep in mind, there are plenty of places in the world where you can go to where you can get out of paying taxes and keep all your money to yourself, and none of them are places you want to live, right? If we are going to have a, a, a society, if we're going to have roads, if we're going to have infrastructure, if we are going to be a, a power, a first world power, you got to pay for it. That you is know? very true. Right? And uh, we could... I, I did a whole series on taxes as well. That actually got cut short by COVID. Um, but just for, for reference for folks, the average uh, percent of GDP taken in in federal tax receipts or in tax receipts on the whole was about, is about 20% typically uh, throughout history. Uh, it is now down around 17% or so. Doesn't sound like a lot, but 3% of GDP over the course of 20 years adds up, folks. You know, and that's kind of where we are right now. Kind of shifting gears then. The Reform Party is supporting Rocky De La Fuente. Is Rocky De La Fuente a Reform Party member, or is that the candidate you're supporting right now? Okay. Rocky De La Fuente ran with us four years ago in 2016. Right now, he is on multiple ballot lines because the parties that are supporting him, we're, we don't have 50 state ballot access by ourselves. The Alliance Party, the Reform Party, and the Natural Law Party of Michigan, all of us were smaller parties that did not have 50 state ballot access. So the idea was that we were going to get together uh, for one election and nominate a candidate that could uh, potentially do well for all of us. If you have a candidate that is only in one state or two states, They don't look as serious as a candidate that's in 30 or 40 states. So by working together, we gain a level of uh, validity as far as the perception of the voter in public. Everybody 
who's listened to this long enough knows my focus is right now on the House of Representatives. I feel like that is the best place to get uh, to get uh, third parties on the ballot. However, that being said, I know we have a lot of uh, third party advocates who are listening to this. And another potential strategy is to have these parties combine forces, figure out what are their shared values, what's the shared platform, and nominate a candidate based on that, sort of maybe a more European coalition style. Is that what I'm hearing there? And a way, yes, and a way, no. See, the Alliance Party, the Reform Party, and the Natural Law Party of Michigan, we are all very close ideologically. We could not go work with the Constitution Party of the Libertarians. We would just, that in, internal fighting would just tear up anything that we were trying to build. But because all of us are closely related ideologically, it works. The thing about this election is we know that we're not going to win. A lot of these third parties think that they can just create a party and then go win the presidential election in a few years. And that's not how it's going to work. All of this is going to have to start at by building local organizations around municipal, county, and state district candidates, starting very basic on the ground at the grassroots and building up from there. And until you have those strong grassroots in those local organizations, you're not going to have strong state parties. And then you're not going to have a strong national party. That is a very hard thing to explain to a new third party activist, that it all starts at the ground and you're only as strong as your grassroots level. And so you're, you're obviously, you're an operations guy. You know, you're, you're looking at the structures, you're looking at the processes. In a lot of ways, it sounds like the, the, the presidential visibility is really about just that. Yes, it's, it's about having someone on the ballot at the top. To, having someone at the top takes a lot of resources that you could use at the bottom. But because some ballot access laws require you to get an X amount in a statewide race, like a governor's race, a presidential race, something like that, in order to maintain your ballot access. So you actually have to spend money there, even when you don't want to. Yep, yep. And that's something, too. Uh, in June, I had the Nathaniel Green, who's the chair of Ohio's Green Party, said the exact same thing. He said, we would love nothing more than not to have to run at the federal level. But in order for us to get the traction at the local level we need to, we have to compete at that just due to the way ballot access laws are set up. Yes. And, and, and effectively function as spoilers for lack of a better phrase. That is very true. And the hardest part about being a part of a minor party is throwing candidates into races you can't win, knowing you're going to lose and tying up resources you can use to win elsewhere. One thing we've done very well in the reform party is when I took over as secretary six years ago, we had two office holders nationwide. It was the smallest we'd ever been as far as office holders. We now have nine and hopefully we'll have 10 after this election. And we've done that by focusing on local candidates that can win races and that we can build local organizations around. Where have you seen the most success? Oddly enough, in the Midwest where we don't have any ballot access and places okay. where we can just where we didn't where we could qualify on the ballot without qualifying an entire slate, where we could qualify one individual, either in a nonpartisan race or 
uh, with our name. There's some states where we can get a local guy with our name next to him without uh, without having it full state ballot access. Uh, that's actually where we're doing the best right now. And so just to make sure I'm clear here, in order, f- there are some states where in order for you to get one candidate from a particular party to run for, you know, town treasurer or what have you, in order to get them on a ballot under that party, you actually have to, the, the entire party has to qualify for the ballot. Is that yeah. correct? Yes. You have to get, you have to become a qualified party in that state and basically run a state level uh, candidate to hold that ballot access. Mm-hmm. And what are those in, in some of the more difficult scenarios, what are those requirements? I don't want to get very deeply into the New York issue. I was not involved in that, but when we had ballot access there, we had to get 50,000 petition signatures. It's more now. And then we had to get, I want to say 5% of the vote or something ridiculous in order to hold that ballot access in the governor's race. And to get, uh, that's the same thing in North Carolina. I could get North Carolina ballot access in my home state. Uh, it's 10,000 valid signatures, which would mean I would have to get about 15,000 because they love to throw your signatures out. Um, but then I would have to go into a governor's race to hold that ballot access, get something like 5% of the vote, which costs, which would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in media ad buys, uh, hundreds of man hours in organizing, going to events, doing interviews that you could use for a town race or a county race. And so the, and the only way you're going to get that money is if you're exceptionally wealthy or if you're spending all that time fundraising. To kind of tilt that on its head, let's say, I'll give a state that I know we have folks listening in. Let's say Wisconsin. I live in the state of Wisconsin. And I do not feel adequately represented by either of the major parties. And I want to go out and I want to change that. I could effectively organize enough residents of the state to form a Wisconsin-specific party and nominate a candidate to get on the ballot. And as long as I can ensure that I have 5% of the popular vote voting for me or whatever that threshold is, I could successfully continue to get somebody on the ballot as a result of that. To take that a step further, nothing's going to stop one of the two major parties from changing the ballot access laws to cut me out as well. That is very true. Okay. Understood. Understood. Or or they could see you in court on a small, minute technicality and get you thrown off the ballot. Okay. Do you have an example of that? Arkansas. Reform Party in Arkansas. Back in 2016, Rocky De La Fente did have ballot access there, but his vice presidential candidate and him were from the same state. And the Arkansas Secretary of State saw that. According to the U.S. Constitution, the vice president and the president can't be from the same state, and he used that to toss Rocky De La Fente from the ballot. Uh, okay. Yeah, and so that brings us to a second thing that I think a lot of folks aren't aware of, which is you need the money for media ad buys, you need the money for events, mailers, you need the money for lawyers, too. Yes. Actually, mm-hmm. the, the legal costs of running a political party are the largest costs. The Reform Party has spent more money on lawyers than anything else. 
That's and that's again because either major parties well funded enough where they can issue court challenges and effectively bury you in legal costs before you can even fight. Yes. Them. Um and and I think that that's one thing I I stress to folks here too which is everybody knows that the that the goal of this podcast is to make 2020 the last decade the two major parties are able to carve congressional districts in their favor. This is the last redistricting decade. Uh, it is not going to happen without resounding support, popular support. You can do ad buys. You can do mailers against it. You can fight it in court. But ultimately, if the vast majority of the population are in support of something – it will get done against enormous odds. And if people don't believe me, just remember that a bunch of men passed a constitutional amendment to give women the right to vote with nothing to gain. And, and I'd like to say that too to the folks who are supporting the reform party as well. Just remember that regardless of what stands in your way, uh, the popular will of the voter will win out provided you are persistent, provided you have faith and provided you are clear about what you want. Um, so I, I, I want to ask one, one last question here, which is as far as your focus then uh, at the operational level, what are the things you want to do going into this decade that you think are going to have the greatest impact for the party? Well, the people that were elected as the Reform Party national officers this time around, mm -hmm. the one thing that we all agreed on was about putting people into places, building on the local level around local and district candidates mm -hmm. in order to create strong grassroots that we could grow into strong state organizations that would mm -hmm. lead to a strong national organization. Mm -hmm. It's all going to be about building on that local level, starting with the smallest boards and building up to be able to hold the larger office holder positions. Mm -hmm. That is mm -hmm. the struggle. Yeah. Okay. And that is my focus for the next four years. If this resonates with somebody who's listening, what can they do to, to take action and to support the reform party? Well, I need people in places. I need people that will actively volunteer. A political organization is made up of people working on all sorts of different levels and contributing what they can. So I need people that, if they can, to help me organize and work to recruit people and build organizations. I need mm -hmm. people who can donate money if that's what they can do. If all you can do is show up and vote for us at the ballot box, I want you to. I mm -hmm. want to combine everybody that can work in some form or fashion, no matter how small, to get this party moving and working. Websites? It is www.reformparty.org. You can email us at any time at info at reformparty.org. And you can email me personally at secretary at reformparty.org. This has been a fascinating conversation if for nothing else than to learn about special interest spoons, Nick. So <laughs> I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So you could say the reform party was into draining the swamp and reforming trade before it was cool. Now, 
Back in 1992, Ross Perot saw the impact unregulated global trade, deficit spending, and our system of campaign finance would have on the system. And go figure, 25 years later, we elected a president who ran on the same platform, more or less. And we're still under mountains of red ink. Now, these problems have not been addressed, and they won't be, because the people who fund campaigns have too much to lose. And I always talk about how we need to change our electoral system to make this happen. And Nick just gave us a blueprint. Grassroots organizing. So, who wants to start organizing with me? There's not a lot of us, but we're all over the country. We have friends, our friends have friends, and if we start getting the word out, we can have an impact. If you're interested in getting started reforming elections at a local level and sharing ideas, reach me with the hashtag YDHTY. That's Y as in you, D as in don't, H as in have, and again, you can figure out the rest. You might remember I tried 2029 a few episodes back, but it turns out you can't make hashtags that are numbers, and writing out 2029 longhand would pretty much use up your character limit, so YDHTY makes a lot more sense. And... If you're not a particularly social person, you can reach me via email at heydan, that's H-E-Y-D-A-N, at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com. I want to hear from you and I want to start moving in the right direction, so I'm looking forward to meeting you all online. Now, next week, the Data Monkey is taking a break from his back-to-school shopping to dive into what we've learned this month and join me in a collective facepalm for whatever dumbness emerges in the coming days. As always, music, courtesy of Quellertack. YDHTY is shepherded under the steady hand of editorial advisor Adam, quote, I'm from the same town as Macho Man Randy Savage, end quote, Yaffe, produced by the big Gino, Jason Putney, in the northernmost Carolina. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Até logo, cara. A gente se fala. That's Portuguese, homeboy.